Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 13, a little bit of both this morning. Beginning at about verse 29 of Deuteronomy chapter 12. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which are going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I may be likewise. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. If your brother or your mother's son or your son or your daughter or the wife you cherish or your friend who is as your own soul entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom, you neither, whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the people who are around you near or far from you from one end of the earth to the other end you shall not yield to him or listen to him and your eyes shall not pity him nor shall you spare or conceal him but you shall surely kill him your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people so you shall throw him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Father, this is tough talk. This is obviously, Lord, serious business as Moses speaks to the people here. Obviously, Father, you had a grave concern that the people would be led away by other gods and they were. And Father, I believe that concern is as strong for us today as it was for Israel back then. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you will open our eyes and give us strength and conviction and understanding, Lord, of what it is we truly believe, that we might know you and follow you and not be enticed or seduced or drawn away by other gods. That, Lord, at the bridge here this morning, would your word be absolute and firm in our hearts. God, we want to go your way, not our way. We don't want to go the way of any man, but the way of your Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us and strengthen our hearts in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you heard on the news this week of the capture of a man who is listed on the FBI's top ten list. It's not Osama bin Laden. It's a man by the name of Warren Jeffs. Warren Jeffs. I don't know if you've heard of Warren Jeffs. He's the leader of the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, which is a polygamous sect broken off from mainstream Mormonism. Warren Jeffs is now in custody. Jeffs is a self-proclaimed speaker of God's will, a prophet. He took control of the FLDS after his father, Roland Jeffs, died in 2002. He's considered a prophet, a speaker of God's will, by his estimated 10,000 followers. A polygamist by belief, he arranged for and commanded the marriage of multiple underage young girls for his male followers. Now you might see something like that in the news and go, fundamentalist Latter-day, this guy's just a little nuts. This guy's off the charts. He's just gone the way of the dodo. He's a weirdo. He's strange. And his followers are the same. And mainstream Mormons would agree with that. They say the same thing. Jeff is crazy. That's not what Mormonism teaches. This guy's off the charts. They're just radical wackos. Here's the trouble. 
Warren Jeffs, like his father, ruling before him, like all the leaders of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints before them, were simply following the foundational teachings of Joseph Smith. The stuff that was said in the beginning of Mormonism as it grew. Just following what's there. Just taking it to the letter. Don't believe me? Let me read to you out of the Doctrine and Covenants, one of the primary books used by the Mormons, filled with the prophecies and teachings of Joseph Smith. Section 132, quote, If any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse or marry another, then he is justified. He cannot commit adultery, for they are given unto him. And if he has ten virgins given unto him by this law, he cannot commit adultery, for they belong to him, and they are given unto him. Therefore, he is justified. However, if one or either of the ten virgins, after she is espoused, shall be with another man, she has committed adultery. And shall be destroyed, for they are given unto him to multiply and replenish the earth according to my commandments. And it's in the Doctrine and Covenants today. It's just overlooked or ignored or a more recent revelation has said, no, actually that's not the will and the way of God. Now Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, is giving his farewell address prior to his death, prior to Israel entering the land. But remember before all this that Moses spent 40 years in the land of Midian as a shepherd. When he left Egypt, 40 years shepherding the sheep of Midian, and then after that, another 40 years as a shepherd. Only this time shepherding the people of Israel. And what you hear in the book of Deuteronomy is a shepherd's heart. A man who loves the Lord, who is now about to die and is looking out over the people and seeing this flock that has been given under his care, and he is greatly concerned, and so he is warning the flock of wolves that wolves will come in among you and will distort the teachings and will draw you after other gods, pagan gods whom you and your fathers have not known. Don't even go after them. Don't inquire after them. It's a warning against interest in those gods. Don't even be interested, curious. It's a warning against the intrigue of these other gods. It's even a warning against inquiry. Looking at back at chapter 12, verse 30, he says, do not inquire after their gods. Don't even ask. Oh, what's this God about? Oh, what's he like? What is promised to you if you follow him? Oh, that's an interesting looking statue there. What's this all about? Don't even inquire about other gods. Verse 8 of chapter 13, he says, You shall not yield or listen. Your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. Now the people of Israel might say, Yeah, but they seem like such good, sincere people. See, we've got to get ourselves out of the mindset that, that back in those days, the life was different. People were different. They weren't. They were just like us. And so an Israelite could run into somebody, a, a pagan Canaanite, and be talking to them, and they can seem completely sincere. A really nice person who just seems to be a little off. And conversation is struck. And they begin to inquire about each other's beliefs. And, and it's a nice, cordial conversation. Next thing you know, the pagan is enticing, is seducing, and the Israelite wouldn't even know it. And so the Lord says, don't inquire. Keep yourself from these things. Another shepherd, another shepherd in the New Testament was equally concerned for a flock. Because you see what happens with pagan gods, or in our world, cults is they'll mess with your heads. They'll play on your emotions, which I think is interesting, the Lord says, or Moses says, your eyes shall not pity him. How often have you been standing at your front door talking to someone from a cult and thinking, oh, but they're just so close. Oh, I just, I just want to spend some more time with that person and share beliefs and we'll get their warning, danger, be careful. Oh, so you're saying slam the door in the face of every Mormon or Jehovah's Witness that comes to my door. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, warning, be careful. Watch your inquiry. Be sure that you know what you know. The number one group of people who leave Christianity for Mormonism are Christians. Because, hey, it's just a further gospel. It's a little more. And they're enticed. And they're seduced. Paul, speaking in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28, I'll just read this to you quickly, is speaking to the elders at the church in Ephesus. Again, another shepherd. And Paul's concern is very clear, verse 28. 
He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And by the way, that's the primary reason for the existence of shepherds in this church. Did you know that? It's to guard the flock with the word of God. It's to be sure that we're doctrinally sound. That we are taking the Bible at face value. That we are studying the word and aware of what the Lord would have us know and do and be. And so he says, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This morning, I want you to consider our study a biblical warning to this flock. For it's a very real possibility that some may become interested in other gods, intrigued by what they hear, making inquiry into false teachings. Be careful, beware. False teachings are designed, gang, as a lure. And we are the fish. And you think about a little fish swimming around in a pond. And what do they do? They see the lure. What is it that a lure does? It, attra- does it, it attracts them. It, it draws them near. Is that, is that a worm in the water? That's an interesting look. It's wiggling. Oh, that's really fascinating. And they get close to it until they're snagged. And that's exactly what Satan does. He lures. He rarely jumps out with a red suit and little horns and a tail going, Ha ha! Follow me? Anybody? No, he lures, he seduces, he entices, and he does it in the most subtle ways possible. This morning I want to talk about some things having to do with the cults. And I know we've discussed some of this recently, last few months, we need to do it again. I want to talk about some commonalities of the cults, things to be aware of from a biblical perspective, things to understand. Because, gang, we live in a world where we are surrounded by lures, and if you don't know the word, you will be drawn in. Which is why we're so big on the word at the bridge. From the book Fast Facts on False Teachings, which, by the way, I would encourage everybody to have on a bookshelf. Fast Facts on False Teachings. It's an excellent book. It's written by Carlson and Decker. Fast Facts on False Teachings, a small book, and you can refer to it any time. And it talks about the cults that are around and and what it is specifically that's wrong with those cults because some seem awfully close to what we teach, to what the Bible teaches. Fast facts on false teaching. The other one is The Kingdom of the Cults by Martin. That's a great book to pick up. It's a little thicker, a little more intense, but a good one to have. Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. Now, out of fast facts on false teaching, they write the Jehovah's Witnesses have mapped out the entire United States so that every residence will be contacted at least once or twice a year by a team of door-to-door workers. Their purpose? Out of that sheer, grueling persistence, they have been able to harvest many people who have not been grounded in God's Word and were easily led astray by this counterfeit religion. Now, if you're already offended this morning, let me explain that I'm probably going to offend you more. Regarding Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, I'm going to give you several examples from both of those two religions, both of those two cults, to explain what it is that we're talking about so that you will understand it clearly. There are many other cults as well in our country, in our world. But these two are standouts because these two are the most aggressive. And I want you to see clearly what this is all about. So today with a broader stroke... I want to cover four commonalities of cults. Things to jot down, and if you're not normally a note-taker, I would encourage you to get out a pen or pencil this morning, because these are four things that cultivate deception, and we need to be aware of them, and it strikes right at the very heart of Christian belief. So much so, by the way, that this is one of those messages that the, the enemy does not want you to hear. This is one of those messages that Satan did not want me to teach that I struggle with through this week. This is one of those things that as I begin to study and see where the Lord is taking us, (laughs) I get a little nervous myself because I know this kind of study, this kind of teaching, tends to bring with it attack. And so it's been this week a bit. He doesn't want you to hear this. 
But this is truth. And I'll show you what I mean. As you become aware of these things, these four commonalities of the cults, I'm hopeful that red flags will begin to pop up for you in your lives. The discernment will be deepened. The warning lanterns will flash on the road as you're walking in Christ that you will see and know and be people who are wise. I was talking with Danny just this morning and Steve and Steve just started reading the Left Behind books and he was saying, you were talking about that whole thing about being left and again I was struck with the thought I don't want, if the rapture happened this morning, it is my prayer that every single chair be empty in this place because you know the Lord and you know Him whom you have believed. That you trust Jesus. That He is the author and finisher of your faith. And that you are grounded in love for Him. And so with that in mind, number one, four commonalities of the cults. Number one, number one, they distance God the Father. They distance God the Father. Look back at verse 31, Deuteronomy chapter 12. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. And they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. All cults distance God the Father. How do they do that? From the book of Godmakers. Mormonism teaches that trillions of planets scattered throughout the cosmos are ruled by countless gods who were once humans like us. They teach that long ago, on one of these planets to an unidentified god and one of his goddess wives, a spirit child was conceived and his name was Elohim. You Bible students know Elohim is the Old Testament name for God. The spirit child was later born to, a, to human parents who gave him a physical body. And through obedience to Mormon teaching, death, and resurrection, he proved himself worthy and was elevated to godhood as was his father before him. And that's not Jesus, that's Elohim. That would be, quote-unquote, God the Father in Mormonism. That he was conceived, made human, and then achieved godhood. Mormons believe that Elohim is their heavenly father and that he lives now with his many wives on a planet near a mysterious star called Kolob. You see how distant, how far away that truly is from biblical teaching and yet, would you know it from watching the commercials? Looks <laughs> like a happy family there. You didn't know they worship the God that lives by the star Kolob. Here, the God of Mormonism and his wives, through endless celestial sex, produce billions of spirit children. This is foundational in Mormon teaching. The Mormon Elohim resides in mystery, not my heavenly Father. My Lord, my Father doesn't reside in mystery. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode, our home, with him. Not on some distant star, but right here, right with me, right with you. If you are in Christ, the Father makes his abode with you. He wants to be close to you, not far away. And a God who would make his home in your heart does not sound like a God of a distant star. But the cults will distance God the Father. Another example of distancing God the Father, Jehovah's Witnesses accept only the Lordship of Jehovah God and they reject these three basic truths. They reject, number one, the Trinity, which I'll talk about in a moment. The idea of three eternal co-equal persons of God rejected in Jehovah's Witness faith. They reject the deity of Christ. They believe Jesus Christ was a created being. In fact, he was originally the Archangel Michael. And then eventually became a man. And then eventually became the Christ. They reject the person of the Holy Spirit, relegating him to a presence or an energy. Also, more on that in just a minute. But what does all of this do? Consider this, gang. It distances God the Father by de denying the very means that He provided for us to come to Him. You deny Christ. You deny the Holy Spirit. You deny access to the Father. If you can say, no, there's Jehovah God up here and He's great and He's awesome and above all. And Christ and the Holy Spirit, well, the Holy Spirit is just kind of an energy source, kind of like a force. And Jesus, well, He's not deity. He's a created being. What you've effectively done is cut off the connection to the Father which Christ, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit provide for us. Distancing the Father. 
What do the scriptures teach about this? Romans 8.16 You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received, listen to this, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out. And this is what Paul says we cry out to God. Abba, Father. Abba, Daddy. That is intimacy, gang. That is closeness to the Father, not distance. Paul writes, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and as children we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, amazingly. If indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Another area of distancing in the cult is the practice of, as we see in verse 32, Moses says, you shall not add to or take away from it. You do not add to or take away. But that's exactly what cults do regarding the work of God's grace. Adding to grace. Adding to grace. And that, my friends, is humanity at its finest. Rules and regulations and legalism that distance us from God. Galatians 5.1, Paul said, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Not for law, for freedom. We were not set free from this body of sin so that we could be re-entangled in legalistic requirements and demands and heaviness and weight. That is not the way of the Father. It's the way of the cults. And as we read in Deuteronomy 12.31, the sincerity of the pagan cults was tested and proven by sacrifice. And the ultimate sacrifice for parents, the sacrifice of their own children. And we've talked about this before. The god Molech. Molech was that great iron god with a belly that was a furnace. And that belly would be heated up and the arms would be absolutely red, incandescent, in heat. And the children, infants, were placed on those hot arms until they sizzled, screaming and crying out, and falling then into the belly of Molech to be burned up alive. This was the practice that God found absolutely abominable. Molech was there in the valley of Tophet, which means drumming. Because what they would do as they sacrificed these children is the drums would sound. They would beat the drums louder and louder. And part of the reason they beat those drums was so the parents wouldn't have to hear the screams of their children as they were being fried alive. The drums would beat the Valley of Tophet. That valley had a later name, the Valley of Hinnom or Gehinnom. Sound familiar to you? It's the word Jesus used for hell. Gehenna. In fact, Jesus put it this way. He said in Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves, a son of Gehenna. It was that picture of burning, that place of hell. And my friends, living under the weight of law is a hell of a way to live. It is not grace, but the cults will demand great things of people. Will demand intense obedience. Well, yeah, but Rick, you've been talking about obedience the last several weeks. Yeah, obedience in grace. The fact that I am saved by His grace, I'm not saved by my obedience. It is through grace we are saved, Paul says, and this is not of yourselves. That no one should boast. It's the gift of God. We are saved by grace. Our obedience is response to that grace, not a hopes of getting that grace. Does that make sense to you? Let's make sure we understand that. But the pagan cults will say faith in God just can't be that simple. You born again Christians, you're so simple-minded. Grace. And that's it. It's got to be more. And our humanity cries out for more. Why is that? Why do we want to work for it? What is it about us that desires to achieve and to earn it for ourselves? When God says, I give it to you freely. By my grace you shall live. In fact, my friends, this is the singular point that separates the teachings of Jesus from every other cult or world religion on the face of the planet. That is the works of man against the works of God. Every other religion will teach man's works. Only Jesus said the work has been done. Only Jesus said this is the work of of God, John 6.29, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's it. There's the work. That's your part. Believe. Have faith in His grace. But we would rather pump water with our feet from Egypt 
as we talked about last week, then receive the rain, the latter rains from heaven. We want to work for it. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do we approach the throne with confidence? By grace. Not by our works. Not by how good we've been this past week. But we are so into our own goodness. We're so about our own works and our own ability to pull ourselves up in our righteousness. And over and over Jesus says it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Don't you understand? The law, the law is perfect. You are not. And you can't keep the law. You need grace. Warning, when you begin to hear a doctrine of works, even if someone claims to be Christian, it is not of the Lord. And I have watched people get lured into Christian cults that would claim Christianity and all that it stands for, but are all about works and not about grace. Cults that would say literally, hey man, you have grace when you're baptized and you give yourself to the Lord. You're saved and He washes away all your sins. Past tense. But it's your job to avoid those sins in the future. And if you sin again, good luck to you. Because you just might not make it. And that, my friends, is the language of the cults. It's all about what you can do. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Not distance us from the Father, but bring us near to the Father. Which is why on the cross of Calvary, Jesus cried out, Teleos, in the Greek, it is finished in our language. It's done. It's complete. The work is over with. And when he died, Matthew 27:51, Mark 15:38, Luke 23:45, they tell us that the temple veil was separated, torn in two from top to bottom, and God at that moment declared, "Open house. Come in. Draw near to the Father." It's not what we do. It's what He did to bring us to the Father. Jesus died to bring us near, not to distance us. Well, the second thing, and we've talked about a lot, but I want to look at it again and make sure it's clear. The second thing cults will do is diminish God the Son. They distance God the Father. They diminish God the Son. Deuteronomy 13 verse 1 says, If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, I'm not talking about it being false. It actually happens concerning that which he spoke to you. Verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But prophets and dreamers and seers come on the scene and they say, there's another way. There's another gospel. There's another road that will lead you to God. Autumn of 1823. the age of 17, young Joseph Smith claimed to have seen a vision in his bedroom of the angel Moroni. Moroni, or if you take the I and put it before the name, the I moron. I just thought that was interesting. (laughs) Who came, this angel showed up in Joseph Smith's bedroom to reveal to Joseph that all other Christians and world religions were wrong and doomed and damned. This was what Moroni brought to him. They missed it. Their scriptures are corrupt. I have a new gospel, a new way, Joseph, for you to follow. Now, he would give Joseph the full truth on these golden plates. And the next morning, Joseph apparently found this hill, this hill called Kumora. That even to this day, Mormons have a, a great annual celebration on the hill of Kumora where they reenact this whole thing. And they all show up with their babies and their blankets and their, and their cottage cheese and their hot dogs and they hang out and they barbecue and they have a big, a big show there, a big reenactment of the hill of Kumora and Joseph Smith finding these golden plates. Well, he found this hill, apparently, the next morning and he dug and he discovered the plates, but he forgot the angel told him that the time was not yet right and so the, the, the plates literally, quote, disappeared into the ether and Joseph Smith was violently thrown to the ground. Because he was not, at that point, worthy. The story goes on that Moroni was willing to give Joseph a second chance if he proved himself worthy. And across five years of obedience, 
returning to this hill of Cumorah every September 22nd, marrying, finding and marrying a woman, which he did against her father's wishes by eloping, and other works of obedience. Finally, in 1828, the angel gave these golden plates to Joseph Smith and a new or second gospel that he interpreted using divine spectacles. Moroni gave him some spectacles he could look through, and by looking through these, he could actually translate these golden plates. Problem is, after that translation was made, the translation was lost. Oh no! So they had to go back and find the golden plates again. And this time, Moroni gave him the plates, but wouldn't give him the spectacles. He was on his own to try and just to understand them. So you know what he did? He took what in those days was called a peep stone, a little magic stone that seers would use. And they put him in a hat and put the face down in the hat and the little stone would tell them what they wanted to know. And that's how he translated these so-called golden plates. Another way. Another gospel. Another road. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. That's what the cults will do. The gospel, there is only one gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But the cult would diminish Jesus' part in that. Set him aside. Mormonism comes up with another gospel. Galatians 1.8, Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. There is one gospel. You know what else Joseph Smith said about Jesus? Jesus Christ is a created being, not the creator of all things. What does the Bible say? John chapter 1 verse 2 He was in the beginning with God All things came into being through Him And apart from Him nothing came into being That has come into being Pretty clear Jesus the Creator Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 In a man of wonderful heavenly praise of the Lord Jesus The people praising saying You created all things And because of your will they existed And were created Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment Colossians chapter 1. This was brought up to me just this week. So we're going to look at this. Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. And listen to what Paul has to say about the nature of Jesus Christ who the cults will diminish. Colossians 1 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Uh oh. He's the firstborn. That means he was born. The word there is prototokos in the Greek. And what it implies is the heir of all things. Not the first created. There's another word for first created. This is not the word used here. But reading on, watch this. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on on earth or things in heaven. Now Kelly came up last week and was talking to me because she had a visit from a Jehovah's Witness. And they took her right to this verse and they say, see, he was the firstborn of all creation. Understand the context of what Paul is talking about. You can, by the way, take any scripture and make it say whatever you want. Context is critical. What is Paul saying in the big picture here? That he created all things. By him all things were created, and all things have been created through him and for him. So is Jesus the creator? Listen, understand this. The creator cannot create himself. If he can create himself, it's impossible. He's not the creator. The creator must come first to be the creator. And then create other things. The creator cannot create himself. Something interesting that the Jehovah's Witnesses do in their Bible, the New World Translation. They insert a word that is not there in the original Greek, and the word is other. 
and they insert it six times in this verse, they suggest that Christ created all other things. It's a very subtle little word. He created all other things. But He Himself was created is the implication. And that's not, my friends, what the Scriptures teach. Why do we come back to this whole idea of the cults diminishing Christ? Because, gang, listen to me, I absolutely believe this to be true. You cannot be saved without believing that Jesus is God. Outside of that belief, you don't have salvation. How can I be so dogmatic? Gang, it was not a created being on the cross. It was God on the cross. It was God the Son, the person of Jesus Christ. And we've been over this time and time again. We're going to go over it again. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you don't recognize me? He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said in John 10.30 I and the Father are one God the Son God the Father God the Son we are one Revelation 1.17 Jesus says I am the first the word first there is hoprotos which means preceding everything nothing came before Jesus because he was already there eternal coexistent with the Father I am the first and the last. That word last is eschatos, where we get our word eschatology. And it means the farthest, the uttermost. Nothing goes beyond Jesus. And nothing came before Jesus. He said, I am the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who fits the description of being the first, that is, there before anything else, and the last, after everything else, but who was also dead and is now alive, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Let me just read that again. Can this be any more clear? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Who was? God was. God the Son. But the cults would diminish the deity of Jesus, saying He's a created being. He's a man. And he just achieved this level of godness. Joseph Smith also stated the following. He said, as man is, and this, by the way, is a primary tenet of Mormonism, a central axiom of the Mormon faith. As man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. As man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. It's called the law of eternal progression. Back to the book Fast Facts on, on False Teachings. It says, By maintaining a rigid code of financial and moral requirements and through performing secret temple rituals for themselves and for the dead, the Latter-day Saints hope to prove their worthiness and thus become gods. And yet Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 4, There's one body and there is one spirit, just as also you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And by the way, there's your trinity right there. There is one Spirit, there is one Lord, and there is one God the Father, one Holy Spirit, one Lord Jesus, one God the Father, one God. Like that sounds like three gods. Yeah, but it's not. It's one. He's one. Isaiah 45, verse 21. God said, there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. And you might say, well, Rick, aren't we just kind of splitting hairs here? I mean, with, with Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, didn't they believe that Jesus died on the cross? Yes, they do. But in their teaching, it was not God who died. God did not die on the cross. It was another lesser created being, less than God, not equal to God. And I ask the question, what kind of father sends his son to do his dirty work for him? What kind of father sits back and says, you know, there's some people down by the pond this afternoon, Corey, and they got guns, and they've got the Gilmore's hostage, and they want a life. So why don't you head on down there and take care of that for me, will you? <laughs> 
that bother anybody else? It used to bother me as a kid. Why would God send Jesus to do that work for him? Why would God sit back there all safe and protected and happy in heaven while his own son had to pay the price for all of our sins? And yet, he didn't. Because, gang, it was God on the cross. A couple more verses that shocked me. 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God didn't create someone else to do the work. He did it. And in a verse we already read out of Acts chapter 20 this morning, listen to this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, Paul said, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. Whose blood? God's blood. You're shepherds of the church of God. And it was His blood that was poured out on the cross. God who? God the Son. Jesus Christ. Co-equal with God. Not a lesser being in the Trinity. Okay, the Trinity. Rick, that concept absolutely blows my mind. Mine too. Isn't it great? Isn't it awesome to know that you serve an awesome God who literally is beyond all comprehension? Except that we see Him in Jesus Christ. As John said, John 1.18, Jesus explained him to us. Jesus reveals him, shows us that we might understand who God is. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Not God a lesser being with us. Not little g. Emmanuel. God with us. Isaiah 9.6 His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Here's another one for you in that list of names. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Well, wait a minute. You're telling me that this Emmanuel, that this Jesus, who's called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Prince of Peace, He's also Everlasting Father? That means He's one with God the Father. Yes, He is. Absolutely. You got it. But the cults would distance us from God the Father. The cults would diminish Jesus the Son. And Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that the word Trinity cannot be found anywhere in the Bible. And they're absolutely right. You can't find it. Don't look for it. It's not there. It's a Latin term. It just means three in one. It's just a word of explanation for what we see across the pages of Scripture. You know what's wonderful about the Bible? There are many things we understand doctrinally that take some time to understand. You need to read more than one verse to get it. You go across and you begin to see the picture unfold before you in the study of the entire, the whole counsel of the Word of God. Not in just one place. And the Trinity, my, my friend, it's everywhere. All over the pages of Scripture you see the three together. This What Chuck Smith calls, and I think it's even better than Trinity, the triunity. One God, three aspects of one God. Let me give you something else to consider to chew on here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4, which we read recently. It's the Shema, the hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And we talked about this on a Wednesday night, but I want you all to hear this about the Trinity. It is explained beautifully in the Shema. It tells us the Lord is our God. Lord, there is Yahweh, or Jehovah. The Lord is our God. God is the word again. Elohim. There are three words for God in the Hebrew. Elohim, El, or Elah. El is a singular word for God. Elah is dual. Two. Elohim is three or more. And God is called Elohim in the scriptures. A plural word. If that's not enough for you, you read on. It says, the Lord is our God, Elohim. The Lord is one. And that word one is Echad. In the Hebrew, and a cod means a plurality of one. And it drives the rabbis nuts. Because you can't explain this. Is it monotheism or not? It is monotheism. One God, a cod. It's the same word, by the way, that's used for a man and woman becoming one flesh. My wife and I are one. We're two, but we're one. There's a unity there. And so we see, even back in the Shema. 
the Lord Yahweh is our God Elohim the Lord is one a plurality of one but every cult without exception diminishes God the Son and they distance God the Father and thirdly and something we don't talk about enough they depersonalize God the Spirit let this one sink in this is incredibly important verses uh, 4 through 7 in Deuteronomy 13 You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep His commandments. Listen to His voice. Serve Him. Cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Verse 6, If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or your daughter or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods. Down in verse 8, he says, You shall not yield to him or listen to him. Your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. The cults depersonalize. They depersonalize God the Holy Spirit. And this is probably the most subtle seduction, especially for the unlearned Christian mind, the depersonalization of the Holy Spirit. And I hear it all the time in Christianity when the Holy Spirit is referred to as it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Not a single time does Jesus ever use the word it to refer to the Holy Spirit. He only uses the personal pronoun him, he, his, himself. The Holy Spirit is not an energy or a force. He is a person. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That's the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. If you believe in a personal Father gang, you must believe in a personal Holy Spirit. An actual being who is co-equal with God, who is God. A he, not an it. Flip in your Bibles to John 16 for a moment. John chapter 16. It's one of the greatest fallacies, gang, even in in Christian belief, that we would relegate the Spirit to this this force. To the level of Star Wars. We would say, that's what the Holy Spirit is. It's the good side of the force. And that's just not even close to the description the Bible gives us of God's Holy Spirit living and moving among us. John 16 and verse 7. Just follow along with me here. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, Jesus says, that if I go away, or that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer will see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. Now watch this in verse 13 alone. (laughs) But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. Now does that sound to you like an it? You realize that in this one short passage, He, Him, His, it's used 12 times? A personal Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. Not a force. And Jesus even went further than that. He made a clear distinction and connection between Himself and the Holy Spirit. He said the following, Matthew 12, 32. Jesus said, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus says, man, you're going you're gonna to speak against me. In fact, I think he's got Peter in mind when he says this. Peter, who three times would speak a word against the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, you know, you're not getting it. You're going to be forgiven because you don't quite understand yet. You're going to be forgiven, my disciples, when you speak a word against me. But if you speak a word against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Why? Because you absolutely cast out the, Holy, the, the connection to the Father, the Spirit. 
You reject Him as God, and too many people have done that. Now, the Holy Spirit's not really God. Yeah, there's a Trinity, and we even think about that triangle when we think Trinity. God the Father up here, Jesus the Son down here, and the Holy Spirit either across from or down below Jesus. We're not really sure, because He's, you know, more of a force, so a lesser, lesser being, one greater being, and that's not the Trinity. It is the triunity, one God, three personalities, one God, Echad. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why do you keep driving this in? Listen, we need to understand who the Spirit is, that we are in relationship with God the Holy Spirit. And He's trying to call us right now. See, Jim, they do ring during my messages too. (laughs) Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Spirit, listen to what He does. He helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. A force doesn't have a mind. An energy field doesn't have a mind. An energy field doesn't intercede. But the Holy Spirit does. He searches the hearts. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Depersonalizing God the Spirit. Diminishing God the Son. Distancing God the Father. Gang, you will cultivate deception. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, co-equal persons of the triunity which is God. Deuteronomy 13, verse 8. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you stare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hands shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. Number four, fourth and final thing here, the cults. The cults deviate from the truth, as we've talked about this morning. They deviate from the truth. Sometimes it is so subtle and so slight you can barely see it unless you're grounded in the Word. Again, out of fast fast facts, out of sheer grueling persistence, they have been able to harvest many people who have not been grounded in God's Word. But rather than making inquiry into the cult, which is what we're apt to do, listen, someone comes to your door, they knock on the door, and you have the conversation, and you're a little rattled by it. And it's probably happened to many of us. You're rattled by it. You're unsure about it. And so what do you do? What's the first thing you do? You go find out everything you can about the Jehovah's Witnesses. You inquire. Why do we run to find out about their religion rather than running to the Word to find out what it is that God says? Don't inquire of the cult. Inquire of the Word. That's the first place we should go when we're questioned. When someone brings up something that that doesn't sit right with us, that raises that red flag, go to the Word. Find the truth. It's here, gang. It's waiting for us, available to us. Inquire of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. God says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It doesn't matter where someone's coming from, but if they're coming at you with a different word, another gospel, another angle, and they're not coming at you from this word, they have no light in themselves. They have no dawn. They are not speaking the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is able to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Paul tells this to young pastor Timothy. And it's so important for Timothy to get this. Why? Because Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine, gang. God has given us His infallible, pure, and holy word that we can reach into it and find the truth and know the truth and not be deviated by the cults. Cling to sound doctrine and be, be beware of seductive dogma. Consider, by the way, what the founder of the religion or cult taught and or did. You want to really know where a cult is coming from? Go back to the founder and look at him. Joseph Smith. 
claimed that Moroni gave him the real truth, the truth which Christianity had corrupted over time. Joseph Smith came up with, miraculously, the doctrine of polygamy. And isn't it interesting that Joseph Smith had a huge problem with lust? Wonder how that fit together. Look at the founder. Look at what he did. Look at the founder of the Watchtower Society. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles T. Russell. He was raised in a Protestant church, but he said growing up there were things he didn't like in the Bible. Gang, let me tell you something. There are some things I don't like in the Bible. <laughs> there are times where I'm preaching along and I come to a verse and go, <laughs> oh, I guess we've got to deal with this because it's here. I don't like the idea of hell. Does anybody here think hell's a neat thing? Anybody excited about the possibility that someone you know might go there? Anybody thrilled about judgment? Anybody really worked up and excited about things like that? These are in the Bible. They are truth. Whether I like it or not, it's truth. In fact, God didn't call me into that board meeting when He decided what to share in the Word. He didn't ask my opinion. He just had it written down. He gave it to us. And Charles T. Russell didn't like hell. He didn't like judgment. He didn't like the concept of the Trinity, so he developed his own theology. Theology of a man or the Word of God. It's your choice. Even Muhammad. And Islam is not called a cult as much as just called another religion, but it is a cult. 600 years after Christ, Muhammad determined that all the world religions had gone sour, and so he developed his own. And it was a bloodthirsty, horrible life that he lived. A murderous, slaughtering life. Look at the founders. Okay, Rick, what about founder of your religion? Well, first of all, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. But if you want to use that word, that's fine. Who is the founder of Christianity? Jesus Christ is. And what did Jesus do? Did he come in and change things? Did he come in and say, all that stuff is bunk, it's baloney, it doesn't work, let me give you the true and real gospel? No, he didn't. Wait, Rick, didn't he change Judaism? No, he didn't change it one iota. He fulfilled it. In fact, he says in John, no, I'm sorry, Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. Which is why Hebrews 10.7, quoting Psalm 40, verse 7, says, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. How is Jesus the fulfillment of all things Jewish, of the Old Testament? Well, we've seen that over and over, haven't we? Jesus is all over the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a great big fat arrow that points us to Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all things. He is the one that brings understanding and meaning. Now we understand why the sacrifices were important. Now we understand why the Jews were told that you've got to keep these bloody sacrifices. Now we get it. Because it all pointed to the one bloody sacrifice, most important, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is not just a founder of a religion game. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's perfect will for all of mankind. And what is that will? What is it that Jesus did for you and for me that we cannot do for ourselves? God for our sins. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, you know the verse, that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What did He do for us? End of verse 10. The Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God the Father spoke our deliverance. God the Son secured our salvation. God the Spirit sealed our future. God has brought us out of the house of slavery. This is what He did. And the offer is not just to you and me, but it's to all mankind throughout history. To be brought out of the house of slavery, the slavery of the flesh, and brought into the home of the Father. Why chase after other gods and false dreams and seductive prophets who go beyond or add to the Word of God to entice and distract to utter ruin? I implore you this morning to hold fast to the simplicity of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It really is that simple. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. It's so simple. Keep it simple. 
Keep it simple. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, John 10, verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray to you this morning. We acknowledge you, O Lord. And this is taxing on our finite little pea brains. But we acknowledge you as one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We accept and believe in you as you present yourself. As Jesus spoke those words, that we are to be those who go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the things that you've commanded. Lord, this is our desire, our great passion. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's struggling with Jesus as God or your Spirit as God, co-equal with you, Lord, I pray that your word would get in.